Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Geopolitics to the forefront, even as the economy stays hot. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a week when we woke up every morning and looked to see whether Europe was still intact, with concerns about a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine, despite President Putin's protests to the contrary, even as he said he was running out of patience, and appearing with the German Chancellor Scholz, suggesting bombing might be necessary to stop what he called a genocide. Allow me to add that in our assessment, what is happening now in the Donbass constitutes genocide. But while we were all focused on Ukraine, we had more indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is, with retail sales numbers for January surprisingly high. Retail sales, a strong advance in January, a big rebound from what we saw in the month of December. And corporate earnings continue to pour in with mixed results, from Paramount CEO Bob Backish falling short of expectations because of his streaming investments. We would have peak streaming losses uh, in terms of investment uh, in 2023, uh, and then they would uh, improve from there, which would return the company to total earnings growth uh, in 24 and beyond. But in the end, the geopolitics and continued concern about the Fed won out over any positive news of the week, as the S&P 500 was down for a second week in a row, this time by 1.6 percent, putting it off by 9 percent for the year to date. The Nasdaq fell by 1.76 percent on the week, while bonds fluctuated but ended up not far from where they started, with the yield on the 10-year continuing to hover just over 
2.9%. And oil actually was down despite all the anxiety over Ukraine, ending up at about $93 a barrel for Brent. To put this all in perspective, we welcome now Catherine Keating. She's CEO of BNY Mellon Wealth Management and Joanne Feeney, Advisors Capital Management Portfolio Manager. Thank you both for being here. Welcome back to Wall Street Week. Joanne, let me start with you on this geopolitics. As you talk to your clients, how concerned are they about this? What do you tell them? Well, you know, in the last week, uh, I've actually fielded a number of calls with clients, and some of them ask, you know, why aren't more people talking a bit about this on the investment front? So they're clearly concerned uh, about the, you know, tensions in Ukraine, which seem to be escalating, um, in addition to the, the concerns we've been talking about for months, like inflation and interest rates and slowing economic growth. So, you know, they, they want to know if they need to do anything different in their portfolios. Do we need to change things for them? Um, or are they well positioned? And the answer to that comes down to really, you know, what's their time frame? We've seen the world confront pandemics, wars, recessions. Uh, the stock market uh, suffers for a while, but uh, it eventually recovers. So the time horizon for the investor really matters here, as well their risk tolerance for suffering um, through the volatility. So there are solutions out there, and the solution really depends on the on the individual investor. Yeah, I agree with that, Joanne. And in fact, when we think about geopolitical events, believe it or not, they tend to have very short-lived impact on the markets. What really matters is the larger ecosystem in which they're happening. So if we think about 9-11, terrible, terrible tragedy. Uh, markets closed for four days. When they reopened the following week, you had a, a very significant sell-off. But within two months that had actually been recovered. What was more important was the, was the ecosystem that that happened in. We were already in a bear market from the tech bubble bursting, and that market continued for a couple of years. I think the other thing that is important when you're thinking about war is, um, you know, wars take time, right? We've, we've learned that. As a country, they take time. They can um, really impact your fiscal budget uh, for a very long time. Well, part of the ecosystem, though, Catherine, I wonder, is just volatility. We already had volatility because of the uncertainty about the Fed triggered by the inflation and other factors. So putting more volatility into that, more uncertainty, what does that do to you as an investor? How do you, how do you deal with that kind of volatility going forward, Catherine? So jo Joanne said it right. Time horizon matters. And for most investors, their time horizon is actually quite long. They're saving for their retirement or maybe even their children and grandchildren. And so you can withstand volatility if your time horizon is long. The other thing I would say about volatility is, you know, when we come out of a, a recession at a bear market, as we did over the last two years, those early um, months and years, everything goes in the same direction. It goes up. You don't have the normal volatility, and we haven't. But in fact, when you look at the S&P 500, the average intra-year correction over time is 14%. And yet 70% of the time, the market ends up by the end of the year. Yeah. So this is normal volatility. It just may not feel that way right now. Joanne, actually, Catherine just talked about a bear market. Is it possible we are entering into a bear market right now? Well, in some areas of the stock market, we're already in a bear market. Right? Look, look at infotech, uh, look at other areas of growth, some areas of consumer discretionary communication services. A lot of these stocks have come down, you know, well more than 10%. Um, and their multiples have come down accordingly. And, and that started before, really, the Ukraine tensions really heated up. And it was primarily triggered by the Fed signaling that they were going to be raising rates and when rates actually rose. But, you know, back to Catherine's point on, on the environment in which this higher risk has now arrived, we, we are the U.S. economy and the global economy still in the midst of recovery from the worst of the pandemic. So we have a backdrop of production increasing whether it's in industrials, consumer products, the housing market, right? And these are all trends that are likely to continue despite what is happening in the Ukraine. 
uh, because, you know, there's more and more production coming online. Cars, for example, have really been held back. And that should ease in the back half of the year, for example, as semiconductor production. Uh, new factories come online starting in the middle of this year. So the economic environment is actually fairly positive. We worry, though, right, about the Ukraine situation and how the sanctions that may end up being triggered if this really uh, goes forward will affect particularly the European economy. Thank you so much, Catherine Keating and Joanne Feeney. They're going to be staying with us as we turn to the question of what we should expect from the rest of the year. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We are back with Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management and Catherine Keating of BNY Mellon Wealth Management. So, Catherine, let me come to you. We had this discussion, good discussion. I was going to ask you about the rest of the year, where the S&P 500 would be. Forget that. What about inflation? Because that's what everybody's talking about. Where do you see inflation now and where's it going the rest of the year, do you think? It is the most important question, actually, and it's the first one on everybody's minds. And I think to really understand it, we have to step back and reflect for a moment on what we've been through. As I said, we were in a healthy business cycle that got interrupted by a health recession, not a normal recession, a health recession. People were getting sick from this terrible virus that made the economy sick. And then we got an unusual kind of medicine, right? We got this $6 trillion in fiscal stimulus in this country, which really changed some things in the recession. The first thing it changed is incomes didn't go down. That's very unusual. Incomes didn't go down. Spending didn't go down. That's very unusual. Normally in a pandemic, we tighten our belts. What happened was people kept spending, but they shifted their spending to goods, right? We weren't buying services. We weren't going on vacation, but we were buying goods, all the things we needed to work at home, the um, laptops and you know, computers and monitors and all of those things, um, and, and all the things we needed to do life, everything in our lives at home. And we're, we're, I think we're starting to get past some of that. We see some of the, um, you know, it, it was sort of an economics 101, right? You have all of this demand for goods, and you don't have the supply to get them. We're, we see that starting to correct a little bit. The fourth quarter was really a story about restocking inventories. And so I think the question about inflation is, does the torrid pace of consumers buying goods start to come off of its peak, and do we see more normal behavior, which is shifting to services. Joanne, do you yeah, have an answer to that question? Uh, <laughs> sure, that's exactly right. I'll put on my economist hat here for a second. But uh, yeah, when you have this demand so high and supply not able to catch up and interest rates not rising for various reasons, the only place the pressure valve can, you know, uh, can be turned is, is on the inflation front. And we should, towards the middle of this year, start to lap some of the biggest price increases. So with fiscal spending less um, than last year uh, and with a shift back over to services spending, we're already seeing that in the mobility data, more travel, more hotel bookings, more Airbnb bookings coming. That should take a lot of the pressure off inflation, uh, particularly in the beginning of the year, plus more supplies, I mentioned before, more chips from the semiconductor companies mean more cars can be produced and everything else. Um, you know, on the other hand, though, we have to worry a little bit about the labor situation because the pandemic did trigger an awful lot of people to just leave the workforce, particularly the baby boomer generation, and they're not likely to come back. So we have a shortage of labor. We're going to have higher wages. That's going to continue to keep the upward pressure on prices. But with the Fed's actions, with more supply coming on, with the shift over to services spending, you know, it's likely that the torrid pace of inflation does ease a little bit uh, through the course of this year. 
but it's going to take some time. Probably inflation gets worse as the housing price increases start to filter into the measured inflation numbers. Um, as, as they've begun to do, it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it actually gets better. Yeah, we would agree with that. And, and you know, the thing about goods inflation is that it, uh, it tends not to be very high, right? There's so much competition, so many brands out there competing for consumer dollars. Uh, sticky inflation is what we really worry about. So we worry about, um, you know, rents and wages in particular. And if you asked us about the one thing we're most focused on, it is that increase in labor costs because it's running at about 4% a year right now. And what we need is for uh, the Fed to do what it will do, which is raise rates a bit. We need employers to do what they want to do, which is um, manage their costs and grow their profits. Um, and we need employees to come back to the workforce. And there are things that we're missing, right? We, we didn't have the normal mobility and immigration um, over the last couple of years, which is, which is very important. We didn't have mobility of people, be able to move from one place to another to take a job. Um, I think the flexibility that a lot of businesses are adopting are going invite, will invite people back uh, to the workforce. Um, and we need productivity, which actually we've been living a productivity boom. That's how you recover corporate earnings and recover all the GDP that was lost without, with fewer workers. We still have three million fewer workers. Joanne, you talk about pressure on prices. What about pressure on portfolio managers? <laughs> because in a world where you've got two or three percent inflation, a five percent return every year on your portfolio looks pretty good. In a world of seven percent inflation, it doesn't look so good. Do you have investors basically saying, wait a second, how can I keep up with this inflation? Yeah, that's obviously more of a problem for those heavily exposed to fixed income, right? And that's where there's going to be a real challenge in keeping up. But, you know, when you think about inflation and stock prices, you recognize that the uh, source of inflation is coming from companies raising prices. They raise prices. That means their revenue goes up. That means their earnings go up. And, you know, commensurately, uh, stock prices tend to follow that. So there's a lot of protection in stock prices for inflation. Plus, you can always direct your portfolio more towards the sort of companies that do better when inflation and interest rates are higher. That could be banks, that could be real estate companies, that could be energy companies. So there are ways to build protection, and we've been doing that for clients for, for actually quite a while now. So which stocks do you like right now? Well, it depends on, on the sort of client. So for the sort of more conservative client, we're looking for stocks that will deliver some dividend yield, for example, but it also can appreciate. So in the tech world, a company like Qualcomm or Cisco, uh, for a safer play, uh, a Philip Morris that has a very high dividend yield. And in the energy world, we like Chevron, we like Kinder Morgan. You know, the energy demand is going to continue to be strong because we do think uh, the recovery continues. Plus, by the way, that adds a little bit of insurance against this, uh, this Ukraine-Russia situation. So, Catherine, take a look at the rest of the year. As you look out, we can't know for sure. What do you anticipate for the rest of 2022? It's been a rough start to the year, I think it's fair to say. I think I would say that uh, we anticipate it coming back to a new normal. And what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, we will still have economic growth, but it will be lower than it was, right? Maybe 4% this year in the U.S. Uh, we continue to think that stocks can do well, but it will be lower than they were doing the last three years, actually, when the S&P 500 almost doubled. Um, we think that we will have inflation, but we think we will transition to a lower infl inflation rate. And in fact, the end point of inflation really 
really matters because if you if you have inflation between three and four percent, you know, over time, markets can do very well. That's what that's what it's been for most of our careers. So the endpoint for inflation really matters. Thank yeah. you so very much to Catherine Keating, of CEO of BNY Mellon Wealth Management, and Joanne Feeney. She's portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management. Thank you so much for being with Wall Street Week today. Coming up, retail sales are back up, but how long will it last? And what's the next new thing in retail? We ask retail guru, Mickey Drexler. I think sale is the enemy of any retailer. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Everything seems like it's going up. I still worry about prices increasing. Consumer spending. When it comes to the U.S. economy, it's one of the main indicators of how we're doing. So after retail sales trailed off at the end of last year, we breathed a collective sigh of relief when they bounced back strongly, up 3.5% in January. Although some of that was really from inflation. On a nominal basis, I say that very deliberately, of course, because we saw also inflation spike in the month of January. So we're not used to seeing these inflation and additional juiced sales in retail sales. And the rest of 2022 may be a challenging one for retailers, as money from that child tax credit expires. We are concerned that uh, the expiration of the child tax credit leaves millions of families without that added um, source of income that they really need to be able to support their families. Of course, it's not only about how much we shop, but also about how we shop, with brick and mortar stores taking the biggest hit in commercial real estate from the pandemic. I think there will be some conversions. 
um, where possible away from uses that are not quite as valuable anymore, retail being the top one. Even as online sales grew dramatically. And when it comes to retail, there's really only one person we want to talk to, and that is Mickey Drexler. He founded Madewell and Old Navy. He ran the Gap and J. Crew and built them into behemoths in the retail industry, and we're delighted to have him on Wall Street Week now. Mickey, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start with this pandemic. How did it change the retail business? Well, uh, I think it changed it pretty dramatically. I also think the changes were past due. Uh, way too many stores in America which is no secret, overstored, uh, certainly helped the online business around. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it changed it also, and I don't think it's the pandemic, that there's so many companies now uh, taking, uh, uh, paying a lot of attention to statistics, I think more than, uh, more than merchandise. Lastly, uh, I find it difficult uh, that in many companies, in my industry at least, uh, for them, uh, are not going into an office every day when it's critically important to see and touch merchandise. Uh, but I think it's changed it that way. I think it clearly changed the way people dressed uh, for uh, the last year or two. And this changes, dramatic changes always going on. Uh, for a year, we've been up against what I call a snowstorm. Easy year, 21, up against really bad numbers. And I felt that starting this month, February, uh, that it would get tougher again because the numbers aren't easy. Uh, people all had pretty good years, actually, surprisingly good, but they really weren't that surprising if you figure what they were up against. Uh, the uh, money stopped flowing from the government, uh, more difficult figures. And at the end of the day, uh, for me, and always has been, I think the merchandise matters the most. Uh, business, what I hear, because you know I, I'm a small part of it, uh, what I hear is quite challenging and difficult in February and perhaps part of uh, January. Uh, supply chain issues, uh, price of cotton right. has gone up, I think, about 50% uh, freight. Uh, so it's caused a lot of inflation in, in our, our business and I think obviously in the retail business. So uh, it's not easy out. I think we're headed for much more difficult times. But by nature, I'm always pessimistic. Right. So, Mickey, let me yeah. pick up on one thing you've been talking about, and that is seeing and feeling the merchandise. I know you. I know the kind of retailer you are. You would walk around your stores and get a real sense of the merchandise and the interaction with people. How does that survive in an online AI world or artificial intelligence there, big data, things like that? Or is that a thing in the past? If it is, uh, the companies, I think, well, look, it's, it's about product. Uh, it's the only thing I know. Uh, our business is extremely strong because, uh, you know, we're small, but I sit with the merchants every day. I sit with design, not because I'm the one with all the answers, because I've been there and done it. I've seen the movie a lot, and I've made every mistake in the book. Uh, the very young people kind of think when I make a mistake, they like to repeat that I made a mistake. I laugh. Uh, but in retail, predicting what's going to sell uh, is a really important part of it. And the other thing is uh, knowing what's kind of a day-in, day-out business year to year. But I, I think uh, you can't be there, in my opinion, without being and watching the goods. And there's a spontaneity, a creativity that happens. I uh, met a woman the other day who works in a company, 50 people, uh, no office at all. 
And I said, how could you run a retail business where you're not uh, looking and communicating? It's not just merchandise. I think I, I don't know the finance business or your world, but I know in my world, uh, the creativity flows regularly. You can get an idea anywhere, any place, any time, based on what excites you, stimulates you, or gives you a bigger imagination. It's really great to have you with us, Mickey. But as I say, the one man we always want to hear from on retail, that is Mickey Drexler. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and we are joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, uh, one of the things we've talked about is inflation, but very specifically, uh, are the supply chain problems we're all seeing, are they a cause or the effect? A friend of yours, mine, and the program, Steve Ratner, had a column in the New York Times today basically saying supply chain is a symptom, it's not the disease. What did you make of it? I think Steve's broadly right in distilling what serious economists uh, believe. First of all, the most of the goods where there's a bottleneck are having abnormally large quantity, not abnormally small quantity. So obviously, if you have a big increase in demand, you're going to encounter capacity limits. Second, what the supply chain people ignore is that if more money's being spent, for example, on used cars, yes, that's associated with higher used car prices, but it means less money's being spent on other things, and so it means less inflation uh, in uh, those sectors. So while it's a widespread view, I think the interpretation of inflation largely around supply chains is mostly a confusion and mostly an evasion of what I predicted a year ago, that if we overflowed the bathtub, we were going to get an overflow uh, as the economy overheated. So, so, Larry, one of the things that we're hearing out of the Capitol Hill this week is maybe it's not just all the Fed that can address the question of inflation. Maybe we should leave, uh, alleviate some of the pressure on consumers by having a hiatus on the gas tax, the federal gas tax. What do you think about things like that of limiting the cost to consumers? I think we are plumbing the depths of new bad ideas uh, with that one. First of all, gas prices are going to fluctuate all over the place, so nobody may see anything very substantial out of it. Second of all, lower prices for gasoline will tend to be offset by higher prices for other things as consumers have higher incomes and are able to shift spending uh, to other spheres. Third, it runs exactly in the opposite direction of all the things we're trying to do in the environmental area. And fourth, you may get some, if you did get some little bit of deflationary shock when you put the gas tax holiday into place, you're going to get some offsetting inflationary shock when you uh, remove uh, the gas tax. It goes in exactly the opposite direction of paying for more infrastructure, which everybody uh, thinks uh, we need. Look, I think there needs to be a lesson learned about gimmicks that poll well. They're like sugar highs. They make you feel good, but they really often don't redound to anybody's, anybody's substantial political benefit. What's remarkable is that all those much-discussed tax credits, uh, the $2,000 checks that were getting mailed to everybody, did substantial economic damage, and nobody remembers them. So they didn't even deliver the political benefit. So I hope we can 
step back and think about doing uh, the right thing and move a bit away from trendy gimmicks. As you have pointed out more than once, uh, we have a mismatch between supply and demand, not just in goods, but also in labor right now. You've just co-authored a piece that I saw this week, really analyzing what the causes that were. Is it it's really, again, a supply problem or demand problem? What did you conclude? I think it's more of a uh, demand problem. Look, uh, David, we have, by a wide margin, the highest ratio of vacancies, jobs that need to be filled, to unemployed people that we've ever had. It can't be surprising in the face of that that we're seeing very large nominal wage increases. And if you talk to businesses, they almost all feel that they can pass those wages uh, on in the form of higher prices. And so that is the root of our inflation uh, problem. Many people say that it's not entrenched, there's no sign of a wage price spiral, not yet. I don't know what would be a sign of an incipient wage price spiral if an employment cost index approaching 6% and a CPI inflation rate in excess of 7% wasn't uh, signs of a possible incipient uh, wage price spiral. So I think we've made a substantial problem uh, for ourselves. And I think if we don't recognize that it's at root a demand problem and we don't adjust uh, monetary policy in a substantial way, it's only going to become a more serious problem. Larry, going international here for a moment, we now are going to have the Olympics conclude, the Winter Olympics over Beijing, this coming weekend. Uh, you were on a panel, I saw, Institute of Politics up at Harvard, talking about China and how China is positioned right now globally, suggesting maybe it's not quite as powerful as some, some of us sometimes think. I think that's right. I think we in the United States uh, need to remember how wrong we were in our collective view of Russia in 1960 and how wrong we were in our collective view of uh, Japan in uh, the early 1990s, and consider the possibility that we may be underestimating uh, China's uh, challenges now. And we need to be particularly careful about being overly uh, provocative uh, to them. Our provocations with respect to Russia after 1960 contributed, uh, many historians believe, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so, yes, we need to stand up for our interests vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China, but I think we need to be quite careful uh, to avoid a kind of strategic narcissism and uh, truculence uh, in the approach that we take. Much of the news this week, as you know, Larry, was occupied with the crisis over Ukraine between Russia on the one hand and the United States and NATO allies on the other. I noticed, for example, that President Xi appeared with President Putin at the beginning of the Olympics. What did you make of this geopolitical crisis and how it fits into the world more broadly? And how long-lasting do you think the effects might be? Let me say, David, uh, that I'm not an expert on everything geopolitical, but it seems to me that as one who's been critical in a number of areas, this has been handled extremely well uh, by the U.S. administration. That doesn't mean the ultimate outcome is going to be successful and that an invasion is going to be forestalled, 
but I think they've played the hand that they had in a very skillful in a in a very skillful uh, way. I think this is a big deal, not because Ukraine is economically powerful. It isn't. Not even because Russia is economically powerful. It's not that uh, powerful. But I think the question of whether there's some element of rule of international law and countries can't invade other countries with impunity is an issue that is uh, very much here. And I think if this degrades, that will have costs for everybody's sense of certainty, which, among other things, will affect the level of uh, market valuations. Yeah, which Nixon go to China was specifically supposed to undo. This may be undoing Henry Kissinger's work. Larry, thank you so very much. That was very helpful. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Banking in the metaverse. Having troubles in the world as we know it, worried about higher rates or a possible recession or tanks coming across the Ukraine border? Well, maybe tech has the answer for you and for all of us, for that matter. At this point, we've all heard about the metaverse. That term taken from a sci-fi book from 30 years ago and expropriated by none other than Mark Zuckerberg, who used it to rename Facebook Meta. And this is what he had to say about it when he made that announcement. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. Our company is now Meta. This week, Mr. Zuckerberg took it a step further in a memo to his staff, updating the company's values and what he called its cultural operating system, summing it up as focused on Meta, Meta Mates, and me. So Facebookers are now MetaMates, which reminds me at least of when Disney bought ABC and the company started addressing people like Peter Jennings and Ted Koppel as castmates in employee emails. Well, let's hope the people at Meta embrace their new title with more enthusiasm than some of the folks at ABC News did back in the day. But it's not just Meta, nay Facebook, that's embracing the metaverse. When Disney CEO Bob Chapek talked about his earnings just last week, he called the metaverse a, quote, third dimension of storytelling. I think it's a great opportunity for us. I think it's the next great horizon for Disney. I think it's the next great horizon in entertainment. And don't forget toys in this metaverse. The CEO of Mattel certainly hasn't. The metaverse, uh, NFTs, and other digital opportunities, digital experiences, will give us an opportunity to engage with consumers and create another opportunity for us to commercialize our brands and franchises in other ways. To be sure, not everyone is sure what exactly the metaverse is or whether it truly will change the world. Here's Eileen Lee of Cowboy Ventures. I think the metaverse is just like, what does that mean really? Um, it's, if you mean the metaverse, like are we all gonna be wearing VR headsets and staying in our houses all the time? I think that's, you know, if we're lucky enough to emerge from our caves after this pandemic, I think at least for the next three to five years, people are going to be more excited to engage in real life than ever before. But if we needed final confirmation that this metaverse thing is going mainstream, it came this week from the big banks. With JP Morgan leading the way, the way that is into Onyx, that's its name for its metaverse lounge. Complete, of course, with a JPEG image of CEO Jamie Dimon. And accompanied by an 18-page paper on why the metaverse is a $1 trillion, yes, I said $1 trillion opportunity. 
Now, if you want to get into the J.P. Morgan Meta Lounge, all you need to do is go to Decentraland's Metajuku Mall. Put that in your GPS and see what happens. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.